Well, hi, folks, and welcome to the I'm All Over the Place podcast. I want to thank you so much for joining me. I'm continuing this format of sharing with you some of these shows I'm doing for the KJLH radio station in LA. If you don't know, I have now started to do a radio show for KJLH, which is now housed on their website. You can find it in podcast form as well. But I feel like a lot of these conversations are going to be really relevant to my audience. And so I have gotten permission from them to be able to share some of these on the I'm All Over the Place podcast. So works out really well. If you're already subscribed to the podcast, all you have to do is just keep listening and you will get to hear a lot of the information that I'm sharing over there. I do want to tell you about a few shows that I have coming up in the month of March. On the 2nd of March, I will be in the Fayetteville area at the University of Arkansas in Fayetteville, and I will be doing a combination of a masterclass and a performance there. You can find more information about that on my website. On the 17th of March, I'm going to be in Nashville, Tennessee, my former stomping grounds. I just moved away from Nashville a few years ago, so I will be returning to Nashville to do a show with the Nashville Jazz Workshop in honor of the wonderful Miss Nancy Wilson. So this is going to be kind of a hybrid performance, more of the kind of thing I'm getting into as time goes on, where I get to do a little bit of that breakdown thing, where I'm kind of giving you some information and education along with a performance. So I'm going to do some teaching and then the band will play. And so we'll talk about the life of Nancy Wilson. We'll work through that uh, at Jazz on the Move. That is the 17th at St. Patrick's Day, the 17th of March in Nashville. And then lastly, I will be doing a performance again. We're going to be returning to Blues Alley on the 22nd of March. That was my dad's birthday. So that's going to be an easy one to remember for me. But we'll do two shows at seven o'clock and nine o'clock. And that's a Friday night on the 22nd of March. This has just been confirmed at Blues Alley in Washington, D.C. So head to the website, get your tickets there, get your tickets early, because we'd like to know that the shows are actually reaching people and they're selling. Y'all wait until the last minute. Yeah, you know, that makes our hearts drop as performers. So whatever you can do to reassure us that you want us in the area. Uh, I believe that Nashville show is going to be free, but um, I'm not sure if tickets are actually going to be available ahead of time for that one. But the other two shows, Arkansas and Washington, D.C., be sure to get your tickets early, particularly that Washington, D.C. show. We're really kind of new in that market. And it's always good when we make a good showing and they know there are people there who are excited about us coming and can't wait to get their tickets early. So go to the website, daristartucker.com and get your tickets there and come out and see us in the Washington, D.C. area. Please tell anyone that you know who lives in those areas that I am coming to perform. So without further ado, we will get on to this episode of The Breakdown, which is my weekly show that I do on KJLH. We'll get on to this. We're going to talk about Project 2025. So thank you all so much for tuning in, and we'll see you next time. Every Monday morning at 5 a.m., these episodes post, so I want this to be something you all can count on. And uh, please leave us a review on whatever podcast platform you're listening on, and that really, really helps us in the rankings. So we'll see you next week. This is Project 2025. See you soon. Well, hi, folks. Thank you for tuning in. My name is Dara Star Tucker. 
I'm so glad to be with you once again. I'm looking forward to talking to you about the issues that matter. Just a quick note to let you know where you can find me. Head on over to the KJLH Instagram page at Radio Free KJLH. I'm always keeping a lookout for your comments there. Let's keep this conversation going in the online space. You can also find me on my personal Instagram page at Dara Tucker B. That's Dara Tucker and the letter B. I'm on all other platforms as Dara Star Tucker. That's Dara with one R and Star with two. So I'll give you a little bit of insight about that tagline, the Dara with one R and Star with two. Because of the work I do with my educational videos, my breakdowns online, I've had the chance to connect with a lot of my heroes And it's always a cool thing when people that you admire and draw inspiration from reach out and let you know that your work has meant something to them. Well, one of those people is the wonderful Miss India Ari, and she reached out to me a little over a year ago, and we had the chance to connect around a few things. And uh, when she was listening to my podcast, she sent me a voice note and said, you know, I feel like you need a tagline when you introduce yourself. Maybe you should say, I'm Dara Star Tucker. That's Dara with one R and Star with two. And I loved it and I have used it ever since. So thank you, India, for the tagline. I think of her every time I say that. So we're going to delve right into this week's topic. It's one that you're probably going to be hearing a lot about if you haven't already. It's called Project 2025. And I did a pretty extensive breakdown on it because I think it's something that everyone should know about and understand to the best of their abilities. So I'm going to explain to you in this breakdown exactly what Project 2025 is who's behind it, and why we all need to be vigilant in seeing that it's never implemented. This is a bit of an extended breakdown because there's a lot to cover. So settle in. We're going to do a deep dive on this with the breakdown, and then I'll be back to provide a little more history on it and to help us contextualize it a bit further. And then, of course, we'll talk about solutions. But here it is, the breakdown on Project 2025. Here it is. There are some very big plans underway for Trump's potential re-entry into the White House. See, in 2016, no one was really prepared for him to win, but he did. And his first year in office was kind of a clunky, bureaucratic mess. He cobbled together a staff and made appointments as best he could, but things were always a bit, we'll say, disorganized. He was continually on the hunt for people who would be loyal to him and would help him move his agenda forward, and who knew how to help him work the levers of government to his advantage. During his tenure in the White House, he fired people indiscriminately, people he claimed were the best of the best when he hired them, and he replaced them with people who would do his bidding. A very, very small percentage of the people who started out with him actually made it to the end of his single term in office. Well, a lot's changed since then. A group called the Heritage Foundation is currently developing a game plan to have boots on the ground the day he's inaugurated. They've laid forth an extremely intricate plan to staff not only his administration, but to change the fundamental makeup of every governmental entity so that it lines up as closely as possible with their vision of what America ought to look like. A month before he left office in 2020, Trump signed an executive order that would allow him to fire any civil service employee that he wanted to and replace them with people that he thought would be loyal to him. He just never got the chance to implement that plan. When Biden came in, he immediately repealed that order. The Heritage Foundation is now preparing a database of willing supplicants who will be ready to move into those positions the day Trump moves back into the White House and reinstates that order. The Heritage Foundation is also planning to eliminate what they call the administrative state, which pretty much means scrapping or gutting every government agency that regulates anything. Food, water standards, education, transportation. It sounds extreme, but this is literally their plan. They're essentially preparing to make over the government in their own image, which is a decidedly white Christian nationalist one. And these folks are not for play play. 
The Heritage Foundation, the nation's most powerful conservative think tank and lobby group, is gearing up for something called Project 2025. You may have heard about it. Well, it's as disturbing as you've probably heard. Worse, actually. The Heritage Foundation is a not-for-profit right-wing public policy organization that's been around since the early 70s. It was founded for the explicit purpose of advancing conservative values in government. And you might think, that's not so horrible, is it? There are liberal think tanks that do the same thing, right? Nowhere near this level. Besides being funded by scores of multimillionaires, the Heritage Foundation is extremely well-organized and is determined to wield its influence at every level of government. They combine forces with over 50 of their fellow conservative lobbying groups to form a sort of right-wing Voltron that will undoubtedly represent the most far-reaching consolidation of power that conservatives have been able to amass up until now. They've pulled their influence and resources and have released a plan that they spent $22 million developing that they're calling Project 2025. That's basically a war manual for orchestrating every detail of Trump's next term. The Heritage Foundation was started in 1973 by Paul Weyrich and Edwin Fulner on the heels of the sexual revolution in the U.S. Their funding came from this guy, Joseph Coors. Yeah, that Coors. His granddaddy, who illegally immigrated to the U.S., made a bunch of money in alcohol, and it was basically up to Joseph to figure out how to spend it, so he gave it to the folks who would make sure that the government stayed out of his business dealings. Anyway, the early 70s were a scary time for conservatives. Women were throwing off societal constraints and suddenly finding meaning outside of their homes. The civil rights movement had finally caught up with Southerners, and they were being forced to integrate their schools or lose their tax-exempt status. Gay people were existing... But the nation was shifting in some very concerning ways as well. Inner-city crime was on the rise, as well as teen pregnancy and suicide. The world seemed to be changing in a lot of ways that concerned many folks, not just conservatives. But for conservatives, these changes didn't represent the effect of laissez-faire capitalism or decades of racist economic policies. No, for them, this was about a move away from traditional Judeo-Christian values. So they wanted to put it all back, just like it was, make America great again. It just didn't occur to them that trying to go back to something that was never that great for a large swath of the population would never represent a step forward for society as a whole. But conservatives wanted easy answers, and the Heritage Foundation was right there to fill the void. Now, you might be wondering, who are these people anyway, and who says they have any real influence over the presidency? Well, they didn't at first. It took the Heritage Foundation a few years to find its footing, but by the time Ronald Reagan came along, they had found the perfect bedfellow. They presented a sort of manifesto to him in 1981 called Mandate for Leadership that laid out an array of conservative policies that they wanted to see implemented. They tackled it all, from scaling back affirmative action to increasing the defense budget to lowering taxes. And by all accounts, Reagan loved it. He handed out copies of the book to his entire administration. It's estimated that he implemented about 60% of the 2,000 suggestions that they made. And then he hired a bunch of the folks who wrote the thing to work in his cabinet. And that cozy relationship between the Heritage Foundation and conservative politicians has held strong since then. The Trump presidency represented a unique opportunity for the Heritage Foundation. They sort of dismissed his candidacy early on, but once they realized that he had a good chance of winning, they changed their tune. For years, they had been collecting a database of conservative resumes to help staff whatever the next Republican administration would be. They utilized that database to allow them to serve as a feeder organization for possible candidates for the Trump administration. Trump ended up hiring a ton of Heritage Foundation folks to serve in various governmental agency roles, like billionaire heiress Betsy DeVos, who he chose as Secretary of Education, Mick Mulvaney, who was the Director of the Office of Management and Budget and was also White House Chief of Staff for a while, and Jeff Sessions, who he made Attorney General. 
For a lot of these positions, it really wasn't so much about whether they were qualified for the job. Most of them were woefully underqualified, but rather it was about whether they had the conservative credentials that the Heritage Foundation deemed necessary to carry out their policy initiatives. And that's clearly their MO going forward. Right now with Project 2025, they're soliciting tons of conservatives to submit their resumes and credentials to their website so they can continue to build a right-wing LinkedIn of applicants who will be vetted, interviewed, trained, and ready to step into their new positions on day one of a second Trump presidency. They're even advising them on how to start applying for their national security clearances. They're not wasting any time. They're gearing up for the re-implementing of something called Schedule F, an executive order that Trump signed October of 2020 that would have allowed him to change government policies so that he could fire a bevy of civil servants whose jobs aren't considered political. It's estimated that around 50,000 government employees fall into this category. He didn't want anyone working in government who wasn't going to be a willing foot soldier for his agenda. Biden shut that down immediately, but Trump is planning to reinstate it. So with Project 2025, they want to defund the Department of Justice, completely gut the Environmental Protection Agency, get rid of the Department of Education, the Department of Commerce, and the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, which funds PBS. They want to get rid of the National Endowment for the Arts, get rid of the Commission on Civil Rights, get rid of anything that protects consumers, supports marginalized groups, or regulates businesses. They call those agencies governmental waste. Funny that the Defense Department isn't on that list. They're recommending that all diversity, equity, and inclusion programs in government be scrapped and that any protections for the LGBTQ community be done away with. The document confoundingly refers to trans people as pornographers and pedophiles and says they ought to be jailed. The line between the church and the state is egregiously crossed again and again. And look, does Trump himself line up with a lot of this rhetoric? Who knows? But this is a 1,000-page document that he is absolutely not going to take the time to read. The thing that has always made the Heritage Foundation so effective is their ability to condense their policies into bite-sized pieces so legislators and government officials have a quick reference sheet to know exactly what their position should be and how they should be voting and setting policy. The Heritage Foundation has liaisons on Capitol Hill whose job it is to coach lawmakers on these issues and frame things in a way that they can quickly understand when it's time to cast their votes. So no, Trump's not going to read the document. He'll get the highlights and let the Heritage Foundation do the heavy lifting. And honestly, this isn't even the half of it. And if this sounds alarmist, good. Bells and whistles should be going off in your head right now. Even if the Heritage Foundation is only able to accomplish half of what they have on their wish list, this is not good. And there is not a single solitary soul that is paying me to say this. Do not unplug, do not bury your head in the sand, Pay attention and keep your hands on the wheel. And as Maya Angelou told y'all, when somebody shows you who they are, believe them. Believe them. Believe them. And I think in this case, it would behoove us all to take this group at their word. As you heard in that piece, they're not just some fly-by-night startup organization. They have been around for 50 years and they're just getting stronger. And I don't know if you heard the figure quoted, but they've sunk $22 million into developing this roadmap for the next Republican presidency. $22 million just for the spec script. Are the Democrats who, according to some folks, are just Republican light? Are the Democrats sinking this kind of money into a plan to completely gut and overhaul the government to shape it according to their so-called woketopia? Because the folks that put this manifesto together sure want you to think that the Democrats are doing that, but they are not. Conservatives are doing that. 
And I, I just find it so interesting that folks who like to accuse liberals of overreach in terms of personal liberties would go to these lengths to override so many of the tenets of our democracy just to see the country made over in their image or to go back to some utopia that never really existed. And that's one of my biggest issues with what's happening in the Republican Party of today. Democracy seems to have taken a backseat to Christian nationalism. And you'll hear people like Marjorie Taylor Greene proudly brag that, yes, I am a Christian nationalist, and we should all be proud Christian nationalists. Well, you know who else was a Christian nationalist? The guy with the funny little mustache. Yeah, he was a Christian nationalist. And very similarly, he convinced his countrymen in Germany that the immigrants were taking over and that their national identity was being threatened. He started going after gay people and banning books. Does this sound familiar? Just like these folks. And that's the reason that you'll hear them refer to more and more as fascists. And is that a fair accusation? I think so. Stay with us. We'll be right back. It's Joseph M. Wanted with the Constitutionalist Politics. Tune in for the upcoming episode for May 4. Issue, never the issue. As well as, yes, Peter Serafin, Rosemary Downer, Don Gallade, Gista the Rapper, Cy Young, Jason Perry, and upcoming Jack Hagar, Andrew Thorpe King, Trent Rock, Ed Temple, Chris Morehouse, and more. Please tune in to Constitutionalist Politics. God bless. I think that's the ultimate goal, even if half the folks leading the charge down this dangerous path have not studied the history deeply enough to realize what they're channeling. But when someone accuses a person or a movement of being fascist, well, what do they mean? Well, let's go to world101.org, which is a free online educational resource, and let's look at the definition of fascism. Here it is. Many experts agree that fascism is a mass political movement that emphasizes extreme nationalism, materialism, and the supremacy of both the nation and the single powerful leader over the individual citizen. This model of government stands in contrast to liberal democracies which support individual rights, competitive elections, and political dissent. In many ways, fascist regimes are revolutionary because they advocate the overthrow of existing systems of government and the persecution of political enemies. However, when it advances their interests, such regimes can also be highly conservative in their championing of traditional values related to the role of women, social hierarchy, and the obedience to authority. And although fascist leaders typically claim to support the everyman, in reality, their regimes often align with powerful business interests. Now, if that don't sound familiar, I, I'm just saying, and a lot of the folks championing this shift have grandparents and great-grandparents who lived through that fascist history in Europe. A lot of these people have European ancestry. So you would think that they would have learned. You would think. But I think a big issue here is that there are a lot of folks that don't necessarily want to live in a democracy. I think a lot of us just want a government that reflects our values. And I don't necessarily think that's just a conservative issue. If we're honest, a lot of us are willing to accept some pretty undemocratic methods as long as we achieve that end. Okay, so I lose a lot of my civil liberties. I can live with that as long as I'm getting what I want. Okay, so my neighbor loses a lot of his freedoms. I can live with that as long as I'm getting what I want. Yeah, we live in a theocracy now, but I don't have to bake a cake for that gay couple. I can live with that. 
And I saw this a lot in the environment that I grew up in. I grew up around a lot of conservatives. That white Christian nationalism thing was really on the rise during my formative years. I grew up in what was known as the charismatic church after my father kind of broke away from his mother's Pentecostal holiness church. We really grew up with one foot in each of those worlds, but my father was a music minister in the non-denominational charismatic church. So those charismatic word of faith folks are what came to be known as evangelicals. And the Republican Party has gotten really good at talking to those folks and convincing them that they have their best interest at heart. Now, when I was young, things were not quite as organized as they are today. At that time, they pretty much cared about abortion, gay marriage, gays in the military, gays doing anything, really. And they spent a lot of time trying to figure out how somebody was going to make them get the mark of the beast. They were trying to figure out who the Antichrist was. That was their idea of being politically engaged. Figure out who's making everybody get all these abortions, stop the gays from doing stuff, and accurately identify which Democratic president was going to be the Antichrist. And, you know, not to pick on those folks, I, I understand the psychology, though, because those were my people for most of my life. But that simplistic way of approaching political agendas made that particular group of people very easy to manipulate. And that's still the case. But clearly, these folks are much more organized than they were back in the 70s, 80s and 90s. So a group like the Heritage Foundation and organizations like it, they know their constituents. They're very good at simple, straightforward messaging. We talked a couple of weeks ago about fantasy and fear. They're good at stoking those raw emotions. How do I want to see myself in the world and what am I most afraid of? But they don't stop there. They are master organizers. They're not really the ones organizing protests in the streets, though. They do their work a lot more quietly behind closed doors. And a lot of them have very deep pockets. Again, they spent $22 million on this initiative. There were dozens of authors listed in this manifesto, and what it really feels like to me is almost a shadow constitution. I don't think their document is really all that concerned with constitutionality. They're just trying to see how far they can push the system to work in their favor. And they could get away with this if enough well-connected people conspire to take down democracy in favor of authoritarianism, they could slowly transform this country into a place that none of us recognize. And if we let that happen, we will have earned it because our votes are the only thing that can prevent it. There's a whole debate happening right now on TikTok between liberals and leftists. It's getting pretty heated and the leftists are tired. Okay, they're ready to give up on our democracy. Understandably, there's a wholesale slaughter happening right now in Gaza. And a lot of them are having trouble reconciling the fact that this is all happening under a Democratic president. Never mind the fact that the very same thing would be happening under a Republican president. But if the Democrats claim to be a more conscientious group of people, this administration is not living up to that in this area. Now, I always like to remind people that what's going down in the Middle East right now is a result of U.S. foreign policy, not Joe Biden's policy, U.S. foreign policy. We would be doing the same thing if Bush, Clinton, Obama or Trump were in the White House. It really would not matter. But Joe Biden is at the helm and the buck stops with him. Absolutely. So the liberals and the leftists, they're duking it out right now on TikTok. And you have the leftists that say that because of the slaughter that's currently taking place in Gaza, they cannot justify voting for another Democratic president. And the liberals, who are not nearly as radical, tend to be ready to hold their nose and just do what needs to be done. And a lot of the leftists are making comments like, just let it all burn to the ground so we can start fresh and rebuild the system from the ground up, which is absurd, frankly. Because not voting 
is not letting anything burn to the ground. It's just handing over control to the people that mean you no good. Now, what I see groups like the Heritage Foundation doing, on the other hand, is exactly what these leftists claim that they want to bring about. They say they want to tear the whole thing down, and somehow they think tearing it down means becoming disillusioned and essentially divesting from trying to make the left-leaning party acquiesce to your way of thinking versus what these folks on the right are doing. It's really quite impressive when you think about it. They're consolidating their power. They've accepted that they will never have a leader that totally represents them. They don't need that. They just need to become a powerful enough voting bloc that they can't be ignored. How long has it taken them to do that? Well, the Heritage Foundation is celebrating its 50th year. They were formed the same year that Roe v. Wade became law. And they were hugely influential in creating the strategy that overturned Roe v. Wade. That's called playing the long game. And now they've crafted this Project 2025 manifesto that's basically a roadmap to burning everything down and putting it back together exactly the way they envision it. They're questioning the system, yes, but they're also working within the system, which they know is the only viable way to change it. They're realizing that they have dwindling numbers. They can't win by majority anymore, so they have to work the levers of power from the inside so that they can institute minority rule. They haven't won the popular vote since George Bush in 2004. 2004. Just let that sink in. That was 20 years ago. And if by chance they won this year, it would likely be an electoral college win. So the streak would most likely continue. Can you even fathom the hubris of a group of people who have not won the popular vote in 20 years being confident enough to draw up a $22 million plan for how they're going to dismantle the U.S. government? Pretty much every congressional candidate that Trump endorsed in the midterms lost they should have had a huge red wave in 22, as they called it, and it never happened. I mean, they, they just are not very good at winning fair and square, but they have figured out how to game the system. And a bunch of us over here are claiming that the system is irretrievably broken and not able to be fixed. And I'm sure the folks over at the Heritage Foundation are reveling in that disillusionment. So where do we go from here? You all know that I like to talk about solutions. So how do we stave off the diabolical plan known as Project 2025? Well, we got to find our mojo. We have to remember that what we lack in hedge fund billionaires, we more than make up for in numbers. They call us the little guy, the common man. We've always had more power and more agency than we realize. We just can't grow weary and well-doing. And I seem to get a Bible quote in pretty much every week. But we cannot grow weary in our fight to make this a more just world. No one is served by that. I said a couple of weeks ago, we have to remember our ancestors spent a lifetime pushing that boulder up the hill, about six centimeters, really. And that doesn't mean that change has to happen for us that slowly, but we have to remember the sacrifices of the generations that came before us and be willing to play the long game too, because the generations that are coming up after us are worth that sacrifice. And you better believe that the folks at the Heritage Foundation are not growing weary either. Well, that's my time, folks. I'm Dara Star Tucker. I want to thank you for joining me here on The Breakdown. You can catch me on KJLH live Sunday nights at 7 p.m. Pacific. And again, Ponda Replay at 5.30 a.m. on Monday mornings. You can listen to an on-demand version of the show at kjlhradio.com 
or you can download the KJLH app and take us with you wherever you go. Let's meet again on the KJLH Instagram page, Radio Free KJLH over on Instagram, and let's talk about this. Let's engage in conversation around it. Did you know about Project 2025? Have you read any of it? I'd like to hear from you. You can find me on my personal Instagram page as well, Dara Tucker B. And I'm on all other socials as Dara Star Tucker. That's Dara with one R and Star with two. Looking forward to talking to you again next week about the issues that matter. Let's make it a fruitful week. I'll see you next time. And until then, let's learn to shout. <laughs>